Hey, Sari. Hi, Jen. How are you? Good. Good. How are you doing? I'm doing very good today, but um, yesterday I was feeling really down. Oh, no. Um, I'm not even sure why. I just felt really defeated and angry and like the cycle of nothingness was like never really going to end. I think you've identified why. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like it was actually making me think about how excited I was to hear from our next guest, Lori Gottlieb, who is a psychotherapist and she's also an author. And she wrote this book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, which I read a while back about a few of her therapy patients and herself going through therapy and just the different experiences they had. And I learned a lot about how important it is to care for your mental health and stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves. And I just learned a lot from it. So I was thinking how awesome it would be to bring her on the show and have her talk about because I know everyone's really struggling with their mental health these days and a lot of anxiety and fear and grief and all that stuff. So yeah, I reached out to her and I'm really excited she's coming on. You know, I love that this is a guest that you had admired for a long time, got a lot out of her book and, you know, asked her to come on and she said yes. And I mean, she's had this wild career. I mean, she was in television wild. and the news yeah. industry. She went to med school and then uh, became a therapist, has written books. And I think she has incredible insight that you don't, you know, even I think from psychotherapists that you don't hear and had this famous TED talk about the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves that I found really, really powerful and helpful to kind of get out of your own head about uh, how you look at yourself. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh, you, you are an unreliable narrator. That's what she tells people. I know. I love that. And I just think it's so important right now, too, because I feel like there's so many different feelings people are having where there's obviously like anxiety and fear and grief with a lot of loss. But then like I have days where I'm feeling so good and like I'm really enjoying having some peace and stability and quiet. And then I feel guilty for that. And so <laughs> right. I think there's just like I'm just really interested to hear what she has to say about <laughs> All the feelings that we're feeling right now. It's <laughs> a bad loop. That's a bad I know. loop, Sari. Yeah. All right. Well, hopefully she helps. Hopefully she helps us. She helps everybody else that's listening. I feel confident that will happen. This is Just Something About Her, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri. Think of a story that you're telling yourself right now that might not be serving you well. It might be about a circumstance you're experiencing. It might be about a person in your life. It might even be about yourself. And I want you to look at the supporting characters. Who are the people who are helping you to uphold the wrong version of this story? Lori Gottlieb, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So that's from your November 2019 TED Talk. Yeah. What I found really compelling was what if somebody else told your story, what would they say about you? Because, yeah, I was like, wow. I thought they would look at the circumstances of my life and tell such a different positive story than what I feel. You know, I thought about this. I was like, okay, well, if I did this exercise with Lori, what would I say the story of my life is? And it's like, I can fit in, but I never belong. I'm on mm. the periphery. Also, like I'm on the periphery of something. And then I thought if somebody were telling the story of my life, I think they would probably say she's been on the inside of White Houses and presidential campaigns and at the center of things and written two books and had success at that and doing television, you know, in it all. 
seems to be going really well and (laughs) seems to be at the center of a lot of things. But I've always felt like the person that's going to come up a little short, the person that doesn't quite fit in. Yeah. So that's what's so interesting. So in, in my book and also in my TED talk, I talk about the idea that we're all unreliable narrators, that we think we're telling the accurate version of a story, but often by the way we tell it, we're leaving out important elements. You know, what are the parts of the story that we're emphasizing or minimizing? Who are the supporting characters? Who are the heroes and who are the victims? And if somebody else were to tell that story, they might tell that same story very differently. The other part of that is I'm not just talking about the stories that we tell ourselves about things out in the world, but the story we tell ourselves about ourselves. And so in normal times, when I get to go and do public speaking, um, you know, (laughs) I will be on a stage and I will say to people, show of hands, who is the person that you talk to most in the course of your life? Is it your partner? Lots of hands. Is it your best friend? Is it your sibling? Is it your parent? Lots of hands for all of those. But the truth is the person that we talk to most in the course of our lives is ourselves. And what we say to ourselves isn't always kind or true or helpful. And so I had this therapy client who was very self-critical and she could not see that. She could not see that she was in conversation with herself all the time in a way where she was telling these, these faulty narratives, these skewed stories. And so I said, listen, I want you to go home and I want you to write down everything you say to yourself over the course of the next few days. I want you to listen for that voice because most of us don't even know that it's there, even though it is. Yeah. And I said, and then I want you to come back and I want you to tell me about it. And so she came back the next week. And she had diligently done her assignment and (laughs) she starts reading this and she stops and she says, I can't read this. I am such a bully to myself and I had no idea. And so, you know, and I said, well, what were some of the things? And, And they were things like, she said to herself, you're such an idiot when she made a very minor mistake in the course of the day. That is a mistake we all make, you know, probably every day. Um, or she'd say like, oh, you're so fat or, you know, you look terrible or, you're not good enough to get this, you know, don't even bother applying for it or, you know, whatever it is, just all these things over just a few days. And she said, I I can't believe I say these things to myself. And so I I was thinking about this idea that her story is so skewed. If her friend experienced the same exact things, like her friend made that same mistake, her friend looked the same way, whatever it was, the story would be different. The story would not be, oh, my friend is an idiot or my friend is fat or my friend is, you know, whatever it is. It just, she wouldn't think that. And so I think that, you know, a lot of the work that I do as a therapist is I, you know, because I also have this writing career, I feel like I use my writing career because I feel like when I'm sitting in the therapist chair, I'm actually an editor and I'm helping people to revise their faulty narratives because they're stuck. They can't get to the next chapter. That's why they ended up there. And they are usually stuck in a faulty narrative. And so my job is to help them revise the story so that they can move forward. I guess I'll do that exercise that I've it's sort of ridiculous. You know, I feel it's ridiculous. It's like 54 years old and haven't like considered um, and been in a lot of therapy too, but like not considered that piece of it. Like there's moments where you have confidence and assuredness and I particularly find that comes with age, but moment to moment are the things I'm telling myself about myself positive, you know, or true. Probably not. Probably not. They're often very old stories that we've yes. outgrown, but we don't realize that we're still operating. It's like your operating system. 
Those are what those stories are. And they're just there. And so every decision you make, every choice you make is impacted by, you know, that operating system, those stories that are circulating throughout your very being as you move throughout the world. But I bet it's hard to let go because it's, you've been living with your whole life. It's a comfort too, right? This is like a pattern that you would fall back into. Well, yeah. I mean, I always say about change that change is so hard because we have to give up the familiar, even if the familiar is miserable. Right. (laughs) Um, Yes. You know, I think that most of us feel like this is my comfort zone. And so if you make change inherent in that proposition is that you're going to have to move into a place of uncertainty. And humans don't tend to do well with uncertainty. <laughs> so we would, right. we would choose the thing that makes us miserable, but that's comfortable over the thing that might create some discomfort, but might improve our lives. Right. You know, I say that about politics too, is that the greatest myth in American politics is that people want change. Like they don't want change. They say they want change and then you try to change anything. And yeah, that is when things go haywire. Well, I'll tell you what happens with change is people come into therapy and they say, you know, they want something to change, but what they really mean is they want someone else or something else to change. Right. They don't realize that the work they're going to have to do is to make changes in terms of what they do in the world. And I want to be clear, you know, obviously there are really difficult circumstances in the world and there are also difficult people in many people's lives. Right. But when I was training, one of my clinical supervisors said, before diagnosing someone with depression, make sure they aren't surrounded by assholes. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> Oh my God, that's amazing. So of course there are difficult people. So I want to make sure that people understand I'm not saying people come into therapy and I'm blaming them for their problems, not at all, but I'm trying to help them to find their agency. And so there might be the, you know, you might be surrounded by assholes, but then what is your response? Why are you in relationship with these assholes? You know, how much time are you spending with these assholes? You know, everybody does a dance with somebody else, right? There's some kind of dynamic that goes on between two people. And are you, why don't you do something different? So someone might say to me, now I understand why I keep getting into that argument with this person. And I'll say, well, did you do something different? And they'll say, well, no, but I understand why it happens. You have to do something different. (laughs) Right, right. That's just not enough. Understanding is not enough. Uh, You're in LA right now, right? I am. Quarantining in your home. Yep. So you seem to take care of a lot of people's problems. (laughs) And I'm wondering how you're doing. You know, I think I'm doing well. I think that one of the things that's important for anybody in terms of taking care of their emotional health right now is that they're doing things that are meaningful and finding ways to connect. And I feel like I'm really glad that I have my work because it's important to me. And, you know, I think that's part of the self-care is making sure that you're doing things that matter you know, and doing some of the research for this particular podcast, looking at the stats around mental health, 40% of U.S. adults are struggling with mental health and substance abuse, you know, suicide is up. How do you counsel people to let themselves feel that grief, maybe have some kind of release? I think that in normal times, we have this idea that there are negative feelings and positive feelings. So negative feelings are things like anxiety, things like sadness, things like anger, um, and positive feelings like, you know, joy, right? And I think that people are discovering that your feelings are important. They're like a compass. They, They tell you where to go. They tell you what direction to go in. So if you ignore your anxiety, you can't say to yourself, wait a minute, what is my anxiety telling me about what's not working right now and what I need to do to take care of myself. Same with sadness, right? Even when you're angry, like what's not working in what happened with my child yesterday or what happened with my partner yesterday, um, where I'm still angry about that. 
And so it gives you a clue as to what direction to go. And if you don't pay attention to your feelings, you're just kind of like walking around aimlessly. You don't really know where to go with it. So, you know, I think that we need to get used to this idea that there's not like negative feelings and positive feelings. And an example of that might be anxiety. So especially during COVID, I talk a lot about the difference between productive anxiety and unproductive anxiety. Productive anxiety is good, healthy anxiety. A lot of us don't even think about the word healthy next to anxiety. (laughs) Yeah. So productive anxiety is you are reasonably worried about something and it motivates you to take action to protect yourself. So during COVID, we are reasonably worried about getting the coronavirus. And so we wear masks, we social distance, we do the things we need to do to be safe. If we were not anxious about getting the coronavirus, life would go on as usual and we would make ourselves unsafe and our communities unsafe. So that's productive anxiety. Unproductive anxiety is obsessive rumination. It's checking the headlines all the time. It's Mm -hmm. reading the latest news every hour. And it's worrying about what we call futurizing or catastrophizing. So worrying about something that hasn't yet happened and may never happen. So you're like living in the future in your mind, but it hasn't happened. You know, like, oh no, what's going to happen next week or next month or in three months? Right. And that's not productive because There's nothing that you would be doing differently with this like projection Mm. that you have in your mind with this imaginary thing that might happen later. So I really think it's important that people pay attention to, is this productive anxiety? Is there something I can do in the moment to stay safe? Or is it unproductive where I'm just ruminating and I'm making myself kind of sick? And I think we talk about our physical immune systems and our psychological immune systems. Our physical immune system, of course, we want to keep healthy. Our psychological immune systems It's really important to bolster those so that you stay emotionally healthy too. And checking the headlines and worrying about what's going to happen that hasn't happened, that can really tear away at your psychological immune system. That kind of anxiety where you're projecting into a week from now, a month from now, a year from now, that's something I have in normal life, right? You know, I worked in politics and there's a weird rhythm to that, but I, you know, there were sort of jobs. And then ever since 2016, I've kind of been on my own and had the sort of anxiety about, okay, well, things are fine now, but like, what about a month now, a year from now? Am I going to have trouble, you know, getting work, finding work? Or as I say it out loud, it sounds ridiculous. But is there a moment now where, you know, I know you, you tell people, particularly in this time, like time of anxiety around COVID to live in the moment that it shouldn't take a pandemic to do this, but is this giving us the skills that we're like sort of forced to do it? We're like forced to live in the moment, just kind of face that, you know, because you you have lost some semblance of control, I feel like I don't have any other option but to sort of appreciate moment by moment what I have. Do you think that something good can come of it for people and managing anxieties we have day to day, even when things are normal? Yeah. First of all, I think that even in quote unquote normal times that <laughs> control is an illusion to some extent. There are lots of things that we have agency over. So I don't want to imply that we don't have control, but I think a lot of the things we imagine we have control over are actually things that we have less control over than we think we do and vice versa. I think a lot of things that we feel like we don't have control over, we have much more control over, like our response to things, how we respond to things, what we choose to do given our circumstances or the people in our lives. The stories we tell about ourselves. Right. That's something we can control and should have agency over. I think in normal times, people spend a lot of time in their minds, either in the past or the future, but not a lot in the present. So they think about something that happened and they ruminate on that and they regret that, or they imagine doing something different. So they spend a lot of time in the past about, you know, what happened in the past. And they spend a lot of time in the future about what if, 
but they don't spend enough time in the present. And I think that what people are doing now is saying, wait, I don't have a lot of choice in a good way, meaning I need to spend time in the present. I need to see what that's like. And you've noticed that when you spend time in the present, it doesn't mean that you aren't planning a future. Spending time in the present is setting you up. It sets up the infrastructure for what you want to happen in the future. Nice. This is good advice. I'm going to give my husband as well. He runs way too far out in front of the moment from the moment that we're in. Um, so talking about men and difference between men and women, I think that women rely a lot and you certainly admit to relying a lot on human connection and community. But have you seen differences in how men and women are handling the pandemic? These are going to be gross generalizations because, of sure. course, we're sort of talking about big groups of people. But in general, I would say that because men are not really given permission to be vulnerable and COVID, I think, has made many of us feel vulnerable, I do see differences. And I would say mm-hmm. that in non-COVID times, you know, something like this will happen. Um, A man that I'm seeing will say at some point in therapy, you know, I've never told anyone this before. And it's such a big moment for him because literally he has never told anyone, even if he has a good marriage, good friends, family that he's close with, he just, men don't feel like they can share these kinds of things. Women will come in and they will say, you know, I've never told anyone this before, except for my mother, my sister, my best friend. (laughs) So, so they've told one, two, three, maybe, you know, half a dozen people, who knows, oh, but they so feel funny. like they haven't told anyone because women are given that permission. And so it's interesting because when I see couples in therapy, usually it's something like this happens at some point, if I'm, I'm seeing a couple and the woman says to her husband, you know, I just, I feel like there's this distance between us. I want to be closer to you. I want you to share your inner life with me. And he does. And let's say he starts crying. And let's say he starts crying like, you know, a lot. (laughs) Inevitably, she looks at me like a deer in headlights. And what comes out is she doesn't feel safe if her husband isn't sharing with her because she feels like there's this gulf between them. But she doesn't feel safe if he's like crying hysterically in front of her. Right? Right. And women are totally allowed to do that. You want to cry in front of your husband? Sure. Like sure. he's used to that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he yeah. knows what that is. Like it's okay. Yeah. And so there's this sort of weird predicament that men are in where it's like not too little, not too much, like Goldilocks. Yeah. And so I think during the pandemic, it's been very eye-opening because I think that now people are saying, wait a minute, men are responding to this too. And they're having all kinds of difficulties and struggles, and they need to be able to talk about them, especially because men often feel like they need to be the rock. They need to be the strong one. They need to be the person who can't really say, yeah, I'm really worried about this, or I'm really worried about my job, or I'm really worried about you know these people who might get sick, or my mom who's in a assisted living, or whatever it is that they're worried about. So I think that now men are getting some practice, but most important, women are getting some practice allowing men to feel and to share what they're feeling. That is a good lesson for all of us to learn. Okay, we're going to take a short break. And when we get back, let's get into your career, because I know it's taken a lot of twists and turns from media to med school and now some hybrid of all of that. So we'll get into that after the break. Welcome back to Just Something About Her. I'm here with Lori Gottlieb. Your career has taken all sorts of interesting twists and turns. You've not had a normal path. You like started out in the entertainment industry, right? 
I started off working in film after college, and then I moved over to network television. And Mm -hmm. when I moved over to NBC, it was the year that ER and Friends were premiering. So it was a really good, it was a really good year for NBC. Salad days at NBC. Yeah. But what I loved about ER were those really deep, rich stories that they were telling. And we had this consultant on the show who was an ER physician And I spent some time in the ER with him, supposedly doing research, but really, I just loved the real stories. And by loved, I don't mean they were happy stories. What I mean is that I thought it was really a microcosm of the human condition. I really felt like, wow, this is an inflection point for people. You don't go to an emergency room because you expected something to happen. And so I decided to go to medical school. And when I was at medical school- And how old were you when you made that change? I was in my late 20s. Oh, oh, that's a big deal. Yeah. And I didn't get to medical school until I was maybe 30 or 31 because mm-hmm. I was a French major undergrad. So I had to take all sure. the science classes. <laughs> the um, traditional is, path of French major to medical school. Right. Whatever choice I made, people thought it was misguided. You know, you don't leave a job at NBC to go to medical school at that age. Um, and then it's like I get to medical school and it's ground zero of the first dot com boom before the first bust. And managed care is coming into the healthcare system. And a lot of my professors were saying this idea that you have about being the family doctor who guides people through their lives, is going to be very difficult in this new medical model. And I started writing when I was in medical school and I left to become a journalist where I felt like I can help people to tell their stories and really delve into, again, I was always interested in story and the human condition. And people said, well, what, you get into Stanford Medical School and you leave? You know, who does that? Oh, not just any medical school. Stanford Medical School. Right, right. Yeah, and then, that's a good one, I understand. <laughs> <laughs> people know the name, right. Um, and then I'm a journalist and then I have a baby. And so I'm a journalist for about 10 years and I, I have a baby. And I think a lot of parents might relate to this where I really craved adult conversation during the day. And the UPS guy would come with all the myriad deliveries that people need when they have a newborn. And I would detain him in conversation like, you know, how's the weather? Do you have kids? And he hated that. And he would back away to his big brown truck. And then he eventually started tiptoeing to my door and placing the packages down so quietly that I could not hear him, even if they required signature, because he just didn't want to have to talk to me. Oh my God. And so I thought, wow, I got to do something about this. So I called up the dean at Stanford Medical School and I said, maybe I should come back and do psychiatry. And she said, listen, you're welcome to come back, but do you want to come back with a baby, with a toddler? And then, you know, go through all this when you can get a graduate degree in clinical psychology and do the deeper work that you've always wanted to do. And that was exactly the right advice. And so that's what I did. And I didn't leave journalism. Did you know at the time it was the deeper work you've always wanted to do? In that moment, it was like she had put together everything. She'd synthesized all of the different things that I had done that seemed so different. My story at the time to people, not to myself, but to other people who really said, you know, what are you doing? Wait, you're leaving Hollywood for for medical school? Wait, you're leaving medical school to become a freelance journalist? That's not the right direction. (laughs) No. You know, and then wait, now you have a baby and you're a successful journalist, but you're going to leave and you're going to go to graduate school and become a therapist. What are you doing? And I always said to people, kind of joking, Well, I'm either very versatile or very confused. And that was just a way to kind of get them off my back because inside, Mm -hmm. even though I didn't know how it would all come together in the way that it does now with this hybrid career that I have that makes so much sense because everything I do has to do with story and the human condition Mm -hmm. just through different windows, through different lenses. I think that there was always this place of knowing in myself that 
I only get one life. Nobody else gets to tell me how to do it. And I'm going to do it this way for better or worse. And that was something that I always held on to. So I wasn't so worried about the story. I figured that the plot would reveal itself and it did. And did you fear failure or did you think that at each of these things, you would be able to be successful at each of these things? It wasn't so much about whether I could be successful at it. It was more about whether it felt meaningful to me, whether I felt like I could make a difference, whether I felt like I was doing something in the world that was fulfilling personally to me, but also in the bigger sense of, am I doing something that helps other people too? I've always Mm -hmm. had that. You know, even when I was working in Hollywood, it was like, am I working on shows that are going to help people, that are going to make people see something about themselves, that are going to entertain them in a way that's going to stick with them, the way that writing does too. Mm-hmm. And I guess in the, in the pandemic, it does. I mean, we were laughing earlier about how we're both reporting podcasts out of our home. I still manage to be late to my own podcast that happens in my living room because you still find a way to put things uh, on you. But do you find that there is in your life, and maybe it could be for others, a moment where this is clarifying and that you can find things that are more meaningful to focus on? Yeah, absolutely. You know, in my book, and maybe you should talk to someone, there's this woman that I'm treating who is this woman in her 30s and and she comes back from her honeymoon and finds out she has cancer. And she says at one point, why do we need a terminal diagnosis to realize what's important in our lives. And I feel the same way about the pandemic. You know, why do we need a global pandemic to really step back and say, what are my priorities? How can I live my life with more intention? How can I be more clear about where I want to focus my energies? Who are the people in my life who are important? And I think that for many of us, if there is any silver lining to this really challenging time, I think it's that we are starting to say, oh, all of these things that I put off, now I realize that I want to focus on or these relationships that are important to me, I want to make sure that I'm nurturing those. And then the ones that are not so nurturing, um, I think people are saying (laughs) my emotional real estate doesn't need to go in that direction. I mean, what is it like to be a therapist during this time? I, I would imagine that it's an intense profession anyway, but the intensity during this time where people's it just seems like all of us are gaping black holes of emotional need, right? That whatever it is that you're anxious about is just right there at the surface. So what's that like to navigate your patient and try to push in the direction that you were just saying where you're looking at this as a way to evaluate your life? Well, we're at this sort of unique place where everybody is reacting to the same stressor but I think that people are reacting in unique ways. And that's what's important to remember. I see this in couples. I see this in families. I see this you know, with friends where people imagine that other people are supposed to react to it in the same way that you are. And so I think we need to allow for the fact that we are all going to react differently to what's going on and that every day is different, that you're not always going to feel the same way every day. So I think that that's important. Yeah, because I find that some days I feel like this is okay or this is even a gift. And and then some days you feel so walled off and then you feel like you're slipping because you feel like you lost some kind of ground from where you had your head before. I feel like everybody is suffering in some ways. And a lot of people feel like, well, it's not that bad. So I'm not going to pay attention to it or I'm not going to get help for it. I'm not going to reach out. They feel like there's this hierarchy of pain that, Mm -hmm. and we don't do this with our physical health, by the way. It's kind of like with our emotional health, we say, well, you know, 
maybe I'm feeling sad or something feels off or I'm feeling a lot of loss or grief or anxiety, but it's not that bad because I don't have COVID or, or I don't have someone <laughs> close to me who died of COVID or I haven't right. lost my job. So therefore, I'm not allowed to feel anything else. Right. They think it's quote unquote complaining. We don't do that with our physical health. If you break your arm, you don't say, oh, but somebody else has cancer, so I'm not going to go get a cast for my arm because it's not <laughs> that bad compared to somebody who has X, Y, or Z illness. Right. At least I still have my arm. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's right. Um, at least this arm that is broken, you know, the cells are healthy. I mean, mm-hmm. you just don't do that. But we do that with our emotional health. We tend to minimize it. And so what happens is people don't come to me something feels off. They don't come to me until they're having the equivalent of, let's say, an emotional heart attack. And by then, first of all, it's harder to treat Mm. because, you know, you're in a different place now. It's like the difference between preventative medicine and then when you only go to the doctor when you're sick. And then the other thing about it is that you've suffered unnecessarily for however long it took you before it got to the point that you called somebody to reach out and get some help. Yeah, there is. I mean, I had wanted to ask you about the hierarchy of grief because I feel like there is a lot of guilt around that you know, like I am like relatively well off, like things definitely got more complicated financially, but I figured it out. And, you know, I'm a white woman. Uh, You're very aware the pandemic is hitting communities of color, you know, more intensely, um, but that's where all the real pain is. That's where most of the deaths are. And I think a lot of people are having a problem right now where they experience guilt because their situation isn't as bad as others but still they feel disappointed. Well, that's right. And I think it comes out in other ways. So if people don't acknowledge that they're struggling in whatever way that they're struggling, what happens is it comes out in, let's say too much food or too much alcohol or an inability (laughs) to to sleep. To use two examples, (laughs) too much food and too much alcohol. Right, right. And it also comes out, you know, in like a short temperedness. It comes Mm -hmm. out in that mindless scrolling through the internet because you just don't want to feel anything. You don't want to have any sort of quiet spaces, waking up in the middle of the night, not being able to fall asleep, sleeping too much, all of those things. Yeah. You know, it's an opportunity to really say to yourself, wait, what's going on here? What's the not insensitive or sensitive way to, to balance that? Feel your feelings? I just think that things aren't so binary. It's not all good or all bad. And I think that's the problem is that we sort of try to say, you know, it fits into this bucket or that bucket. And it doesn't. I think there's a lot of nuance. And the same thing with how people are responding. That, again, the comparison isn't really helpful because I feel like you're having whatever response to it that you're having. And that's important. And it's important to say, and what do I do about this? So it's not just about, this is what I'm experiencing, but then what is the action that I'm going to take? What is it telling me? What do I need to do so that I can feel better? And when you feel better, by the way, that helps the people in your household. It helps the people in your neighborhood. It helps the people in your larger community and in society. What about uh, Gen Z? The American Psychological Association did a report that Gen Z adults are suffering the most from symptoms of depression, 75% feeling too tired to do anything. Changes to school are obviously impacting them, but they say they feel helpless in planning for their future. One in four, you know, increase in losing sleep. You are the mom of a a teenager. What unique struggles do you think school-age kids are feeling? I think for school-age kids, the impact is really significant because a school year means a lot to them. So a year in our lives doesn't mean that we're missing the entirety of eighth grade, right? right? Or six months of eighth grade or whatever it is. 
you know, a lot happens developmentally at each stage. And so they're missing out on those developmental tasks that usually take place when they are around their peers during that time. So they might be getting their academics on Zoom, but they're not getting those organic social interactions where they learn so much about who they are in relation to other people. They learn about how to be in a group. They learn about leadership and following. They learn about what is appropriate and what is not appropriate. They learn about a sense of self. All of those things just can't happen the same way on Zoom. What do you think the effects for young people will be from this time? I mean, it is, you know, to your point that when you're going through eighth grade, it's a big part of your life. It's a big percentage of the time you've been on the earth. And those years are sort of indelible. Do you have any sense of what that might be like over long term for young people? My sense is that these kids are going to come out of this with more resilience, that they've been through something really difficult. And what they learned about themselves was that they could get through it. Yeah. If you had gone back to January and you had said to any of us, not just our kids, if you had said, in two months, everybody's going to be sheltering at home. There's going to be a global pandemic. There are going to be all of these deaths, all of these people who are very ill, all of these people who have symptoms that will last even after they supposedly recovered. There's going to be all of this loss. There's going to be a lot of financial hardship. If you had said to people, this is what life will be like, and not just for two weeks, right? <laughs> not just a month. Yes. This is what it will be like for maybe the better part of a year. Um, and then some. And then yeah. some. I think a lot of us would have said, oh, I would never be able to handle that. Like if it was yeah. a thought experiment, a lot of people would say, oh, I wouldn't be able to handle that. But look at us. We are managing. We are being flexible. We are being adaptable. And I think that we are being creative about how we connect how we take care of ourselves, how we take care of people around us. And I think we become much more aware of our role in community, in our neighborhood, in the world at large, that we are a part of this and that we matter and that we need to be part of the action in terms of helping. Yeah. So I, I think that that gets lost in normal times. And I think that these kids having been through this and realizing I can get through something so hard yeah. And, you know, I think it gives them confidence for whatever comes next. It, it probably won't be as hard as this. There's no generation on the earth today that has gone through what these kids are going through at that young age. Right. I mean, there was World War Two, even, you know, for children, did it have this much of an impact? Did it upend their lives this way? I don't know. So my son during COVID is part of this thing called the Righteous Conversations Project. Uh -huh. And he is paired with an 85-year-old Holocaust survivor who was five when, you know, the Holocaust happened and he had to leave and was separated from his parents and, and all these things happened. And it's interesting because they've been talking about COVID in relation to that experience of this person who's now 85, of being five years old and having his world upended in that way. And this 85-year-old, my son was saying, is one of the most optimistic, engaged people, uh, uh -huh. right? So I, I, I think that there's something about that. It gave my son hope that instead of feeling like this was damaging, right? I think that in some ways, obviously it will have been, but I think that these kids are going to be really engaged and really optimistic and really feel like they have the power, they have the agency to really do a lot in the world, even when circumstances aren't ideal. What about uh, maintaining relationships outside of the people that are part of your, you know, pandemic bubble? Have you found that hard to do in your own life? Do you have advice for how people can do that? Yeah, 
it's really funny because with my therapy patients, you know, I have people in families who say, I love my partner. I love my kids. I love, you know, whoever is like living with them, but I'm hearing the same stories every day. There's no, you know, like we're just, we're, we're getting on each other's nerves, even though I really love being with these people. And what I hear from people who are not, you know, they don't have roommates or they don't have family that they're living with. They'll say like, oh, I don't want to call my friends with these, you know, who are living with their families because I'm just going to bother them. They have so much on their plates. So here's a PSA to all the single people or people who are living alone out there. These people are dying to hear from you. (laughs) That is is what they are saying. They're like, they're like, why is my friend not calling me? I don't understand. And so it's really interesting. The assumptions that we make about whether we will be a burden on somebody else during this time. Yes. Because the greatest thing is that when you call someone and they really want to hear, they want to hear what's going on with you, even if nothing much is going on, they just want to hear your voice. They want to, you know, have a conversation with a different person. So I think that sometimes people are not connecting because they assume that they're going to be a burden on somebody else. And I really want people to kind of disabuse people of that notion. And also you'll learn very quickly who are the people who really do want to hear from you and who are the people who don't. You'll figure that out very quickly but you may be pleasantly surprised. So I really want to encourage people to reach out. And I also want to say that as much as we talk about reaching out, there are people who get a lot of energy from having some time by themselves. Yeah, because that's the thing. It's like, you know, and I think this is something you've talked about before, like the difference between isolation and solitude. Talk about that. Yeah, right. There's a difference between being lonely and being alone. Yes. And a lot of times there are people who they get a lot of energy and it's kind of like charging their batteries if they can spend some time alone, reading a book, taking a walk, you know, whatever it is that they like to do, thinking their thoughts. And there are other people who get a lot of energy by being around other people or being in conversation with other people. And so it's important that when we say it's so important to reach out, there are so many people that I know who say, you know, why do people keep telling me that? Like, it just drains me. I don't want to have that conversation right now. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to do that as much. Like I do it in the way that works for me. But you gotta be careful to not, because sometimes it's just, I feel like that can be avoidance. So, right. That people are, say it drains them, but you know, there's just a fear of contact or intimacy and, you know, people can like isolate themselves to a dangerous point. Right. I think also sometimes it has to do with shame, right? So when people feel like, well, I have nothing interesting to say, you know, people aren't going to be interested in that, or I lost my job and I don't really want to talk to people because I'm embarrassed and I haven't been able to find another job or, you know, whatever it is. Sometimes people avoid connection with other people because of shame. But what I was talking about was something different, which was people who genuinely really like to have some space for themselves. And in in normal times, they don't get it enough because people are just going, going, going. And so there are some people who are really um, getting a lot out of the fact that they have some space right now. I might be one of those people. I don't know. I do the circus on Showtime and travel for that, even during the pandemic, travel for that. And I did find that it was sort of like the moments of travel, you know, being by yourself in a hotel room because there's not anything to do on the road these days. It's really when I could like process things the best and do the best writing in a way that just like put things into context. I, you know, I found and it surprised me because I definitely think of myself as an extrovert. I think of myself as somebody that gets energy from other people. But I suppose, you know, some moments of solitude like that are 
a gift here um, from the pandemic that allow you to process things in a way you don't normally do. Yeah, I think that in silence, we can hear ourselves more clearly. Well, that's profound. I mean, I'm glad that other people will hear this, but I'm getting a lot out of it just myself. <laughs> so thank you for doing it. Absolutely. This. And are you, um, again, these like total generalizations, but um, does it feel like in therapy these days that things are advancements or I don't know how to put it, like advancements are happening at warp speed? Is it say, are people sort of absorbing and feeling things more intensely now or is, or is the pandemic getting in the way of accessing sort of progress? I think so many people are just much more aware of the importance of their emotional health in their lives. And so I think that, you know, it's sort of like before there were so many distractions. So you, if you wanted to avoid things, you could, I think it's very hard to avoid things right now. You know, you can't put a million things on your calendar and be going, 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 because we aren't going anywhere. So (laughs) the only place you're going is Zoom. (laughs) But it's still, I mean, I think that the kind of percentage of your life that is distraction has gone down significantly. And that leaves us space in a good way. I think we needed to have that space. And I hope that as we emerge from this, that people are going to take that with them, that they're going to understand, I really need to keep that space for myself as Mm -hmm. we move forward. Space is one thing I'd like to bring with me moving forward. Uh, It's not always easy, but it has given me a lot of clarity these past months. And now we need to take some space to play some ads. Uh, When we get back, I want to hear all about your upcoming TV show after this break. And we're back with Lori Gottlieb. Okay, so tell us about your new television show. So we're we're adapting Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, my most recent book, as a TV series. And I'm really excited about that because I feel like one of the things that my book has done is it's really opened up these conversations around our lives that people have felt like we just don't talk about or we didn't know we had permission to talk about. And it's really made people reflect on their lives and what gives them meaning, what gives them purpose. And also this this concept of sort of growth and change and how does that happen? So I feel like in the TV series, you can bring that to even more people. And it's just like my book takes place in therapy, but it's not really a book about therapy. The TV series is the same thing. It takes place in the therapy world, but it's really about the human condition. It's not about therapy. When will we see it? I don't know yet. COVID yeah. has changed the timeline of so many things. So, Tell um, me. you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, What is the story you will tell yourself about this time? Struggle, triumphs, and all. Yeah, I think that it's a story about engagement for me. I'm more engaged with my son because when he's in school, he's your typical 14-year-old who's very much in his social world. And I've gotten to spend so much more time with him and I'm loving it because I won't get this time back with him. So I'd say, you know, more engagement um, as a parent, even though I feel like I'm generally an engaged parent, it's different Mm -hmm. in a a great way. I think I'm more engaged in terms of being able to focus on the work that's meaningful, that I feel is meaningful to put out in the world. When I wrote, maybe you should talk to someone, I had no idea, of course, that there would be a global pandemic. And yet so many of the themes in Maybe You Should Talk to Someone relate directly to a lot of what we're going through right now. And then I launched in the middle of the pandemic, I launched the Dear Therapist podcast, which I feel like it democratizes therapy. It gives people an opportunity to 
hear people in a therapy session and then to see, we give people a concrete actionable assignment at the end of the session that they have one week to complete. And you hear it all in one episode, but you get to hear how the advice worked out, what worked, what didn't. And you can see the amount of change that can happen in the span of one week. Right. And I think it's so inspiring to see that. And we don't plan it. We don't know what's going to happen. You know, Uh we don't know what people are going to do with the (laughs) advice. And so I think that being engaged in the sense of really, I have this mission in life of I really want people to focus on their emotional health. And so whether it's through my column or through my TED talk or my book or now the podcast, I feel like I'm, I'm putting my energies into that to really make sure that it becomes accessible to people. So I would look at it as a time of, of course, loss. My father died in March. I'm sorry. My my mother is getting older. You know, there are yeah. all those things yeah. that everybody's experiencing. Yeah. We're the same age, so I know. Yeah, I know exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I I would again not binary, not all good, not all bad, but a time of great engagement and also great challenge. Yeah. All right. That sounds pretty good. Lori, thank you so much. Really, this was really this was awesome, and it's really great to meet you. Hope I get to meet you in person sometime. But really appreciate all this time with me. Oh, well, thank you so much. It's so good to see you even over Zoom. I really enjoyed it. (laughs) Me in my messy kitchen, but I know you won't judge. (laughs) See, that's the voice. That's what I'm saying. See, my Ah, story is there's literally nothing on any counter there. It is spotless from what I see. So I would say it's time to revise that story. It's time for me. I'm going to do, I'm going to do it. I'm going to force myself to write all the negative things. I'm just force myself to write down what I say about myself and my head. Yeah. A week later, we'll come back like big changes. There you go. All right. Thanks. Hey, Sarah, are you there to do a little post game? Yes, I am. Wow. I mean, I feel she... like we have a lot to break down. <laughs> I mean, she has a way of cutting through uh, the bullshit. Yeah. The bullshit that's, that's in, in your head. head. Yeah. It's been in my head for my entire life. And you're like, oh, right. There's things that I think I should be able to control that I can't. And then there's things that I think that are out of my control that are totally in my control. Right. It's like Um, what she says in her TED talk about telling your own story. Like you have control to change the way that you perceive what's going on in your own life. And that informs what your next actions are or the way that you treat people or the way that you treat yourself. What you think is possible for yourself. Like all of these things. Yeah. And I guess just like any sort of like brilliant notion, it seems obvious in retrospect. You're like, well, of course, of course, the most important person you talk to is yourself. The stories we tell ourselves from childhood, that's one of the things that I was like, oh my gosh, I do this all the time. And even my friends will point it out. They'll be like, why do you think you're like this? And I go back and I'm like, that's because when I was younger, maybe I was like that, but I outgrew it. I learned, I evolved and I don't give myself enough credit for any of that. Um, it's pretty cool that her, um, takeaway from the pandemic, the story she tells about herself is that this is a time of engagement and mm-hmm. being engaged and, you know, it's sort of counterintuitive at a time where people are so isolated, but it rings sort of true for me as well. I guess you have, we have to have been engaged in order to make it this far. I think I agreed with what you said, which is that I consider myself an extrovert who gets a lot out of socialization and human contact. But this pandemic has also made me realize that sometimes when you cut out all the noise, like it makes you realize what matters. I'm old enough that I've learned to live in the moment. And um, that is a real gift to be able to do that. And if people, if people come out of the pandemic being able to do that and not constantly try to live in the future, that will make the rest of their whole lives richer mm-hmm. and less stressful. 
Thank you to Lori Gottlieb for being on the show. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating in the Apple Podcast app. I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri. Aaliyah Jackson and D. Scott Carroll engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams handles research. Allie Rogers is our associate producer. Sari Soffer is our producer. And Christian Castro-Russell is our executive producer. 